Welcome back, everyone. I'll do my little hand gesture if you want. Welcome back. <laughs> so this evening, at least this evening where I am, I want to explore the theme of awakening, the nature of awakening, both in terms of its traditional meaning, particularly as it was in the uh, teachings of the Buddha, and also point to what awakening might mean in the contemporary world. And ask the question, does the path of awakening mean the same thing that it meant 2,600 years ago? So I'll explore that. I know that our practice really is different at different times in our, in our lives. And sometimes we're drawn to our practice of cultivating awareness and clarity and compassion. We're drawn to the practice because we're having challenges or difficulties. And I, I would say probably my own teaching probably focuses a little bit more on the challenges or being with difficult emotions, being with anger or with fear or with the judgmental mind. And a lot of people are drawn to practice because we encounter periods in our lives that uh, are hard. And we want to find some tools to, to work with them. And there are enormous number of teachings about how to be more skillful with difficult emotions, with reactivity in the mind, with difficult body states, and so forth. And Yet there also can be a way that many of us are also drawn to a quality of peace or clarity or wisdom or love or compassion or whatever we call it. And that may be also activated early on in our practice. We may have some kind of uh, opening that occurs. You know, some follow initially the path of the challenges and difficulties. Others, maybe more, are drawn to the light, to love, to wisdom. I think for, for myself, the latter was initially the case. I would find I, I was very drawn to almost like uh, duplicating certain experiences that I had had, almost like mystical experiences I had had in the wilds, in the mountains, where things had opened up. And I thought if I meditated, 
I would get to some level of enlightenment or other. It wouldn't take that long, I thought. And then I would just come back and see what came next. That was my, I was in my 20s. That was my, that was my plan. And um, things opened up. I discovered levels of peace that I hadn't known before, of the mind becoming quiet, of the uh, subtle energy of the body opening up in ways that I had hardly known before. And I thought, oh, it's going according to plan. Everything's going well. And then I started to also open up to challenges. I remember I had, uh, when I thought that I would be just going onward and upward, I had a retreat that was uh, full of fear. And I actually could watch some of my own constructions of self um, start falling apart. And it was uh, scary at times, for sure. Well, that's what fear is. But that occurred, I particularly, uh, I, I noticed there was almost an alternation at times between opening to beautiful states and opening to difficult states. And you know, at times, a fear or anger or, or the judgmental mind. And that's, that's a really important focus. And I think what I found is that the, um, the process of learning in our practice brings in both. It's almost as if we don't really open to the peace and the love unless we also open to what else is there. Both are part of it. You know, both are part. Um, and in fact, uh, as we develop more peace and understanding, sometimes the hard stuff gets harder. Anyone notice that something like that happening at times? Yeah, it occurs like that. I've, I've sometimes taught um, short retreats with my uh, colleague Marisa Handler on the theme of the dark night of the soul. Uh, we, uh, actually using some of the material from the great uh, Catholic mystic St. John of the Cross, but also bringing in contemporary material. And we found a lot of people came and a lot of people reported that they were experiencing, sometimes for protracted periods, really challenging months and years, some of which fits under that rubric of the dark night of the soul. This is a poem from uh, John O'Donohue, which I think points to the way that opening to the difficult is interwoven with opening to the powerful and the beautiful. This is called For Courage, and I think that it points to that dimension of courage which is needed. When the light around you lessens and your thoughts darken until your body feels fear, turn cold as a stone inside, when you find yourself bereft of any belief in yourself and all you unknowingly leaned on has fallen, when one voice commands your whole world, your whole heart, 
and it is raven dark. Study yourself and see that it is your own thinking that darkens your world. Search and you will find a diamond thought of light. Know that you are not alone and that this darkness has purpose. Gradually it will school your eyes to find the one gift your life requires hidden within this night corner. Invoke the learning of every suffering you have suffered. Close your eyes, gather all the kindling about your heart to create one spark. That is all you need to nourish the flame that will cleanse the dark of its weight of festered fear. A new confidence will come alive to urge you towards higher ground where your imagination will learn to engage difficulty as its most rewarding threshold. How many can relate in some ways to at least some aspects of that poem? Yeah. And so again, much of our teaching is on how to navigate the challenging moments, but it's also helpful, and this is what I want to focus on for the rest of the time, to remember that intention which um, the Buddha identified as awakening. Awakening in the original language is Bodhi, related to the word uh, for Buddha. The word Buddha means the awakened one. And so he was saying really that deep in our nature is something which is more fundamental than the difficulties and challenges, much, much as in the poem. And yet we can't really get to those depths without being with the challenges. I thought that was different initially. And I don't know, I haven't looked at Spirit Rock advertising lately, but my guess is that we don't say something like, come, learn some good tools and mindfulness, and then hang out with your six major forms of neuroses, your 10 major forms of reactivity, encounter fear, grief, and loss, and continue to come back. Does the advertising say that? Has anyone seen that? I don't think so. It's more emphasizing the beautiful qualities. So both are, both are there. Uh, and I, I just want to really have that be clear at the beginning. So, but it's also very helpful to focus on the fact that this awakening is possible and it can be our horizon. I think it helps to take it as our, as our horizon. Sometimes the way we practice and sometimes the way mindfulness has been popularized, there's a loss of the dimension of awakening. And the aim of meditation become, becomes to find some peace or relax some or learn how to uh, come back to balance or, you know, uh, enjoy 
enjoy life more. And those are all valuable, but awakening is the intention that the Buddha pointed to. He said, those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging, and have destroyed the toxins in their minds. They are luminous. They are completely liberated in this life. And most commonly, the Buddha, in characterizing awakening, talked more negatively about awakening. He said, awakening is the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. Or we might say compulsive grasping, compulsive pushing away, and the underlying ignorance or delusion, really an ignorance or delusion about our deeper nature, that our deeper nature is one of wisdom and love. In some of the texts, the Buddha says that every being has a radiant quality which gets covered over. There is a radiance which can manifest as clarity, it can manifest as love, it can manifest as compassion, and it gets covered over. And much of the practice that we do is to develop the qualities that work through the greed, hatred, and delusion and strengthen the qualities that are there when we're awake, the qualities of mindfulness and tranquility and concentration and equanimity <clears throat> and energy in the body and joy. So the Buddha mostly talked more negatively about awakening, seeing it as continually working through the reactivity of greed and strong aversion that gets habitual, our habitual patterns, and then our habitual patterns of mind, of who we think we are. <clears throat> it's a working through of that and then manifesting these more, more beautiful qualities. <clears throat> Sometimes, rather rarely, the Buddha talked about awakening as something positive. Or maybe better, I should say, he talked about the uh, positive qualities of awakening and actually described it in some, some rare passages. Um, so, for example, he talked about a kind of consciousness that is signless, that is boundless, that is luminous. And he equated awakening to living from this signless, boundless, luminous awareness. Signless means that we no longer live in the conceptual mind. Even if we use concepts at times, the Buddha certainly used concepts. <clears throat> but that we are not dominated by the conceptual mind, that we can, just with a moment's intention, 
drop the conceptual mind and enter into this signless, boundless, luminous awareness. So signless means beyond the conceptual mind. Boundless means that there's a quality of um, almost like infinitude that's connected with awareness. That awareness goes on continually. There's a quality of great space. There's also a kind of uh, non-dual quality to it, that inner and outer are not distinguished. There's just infinite going outwards, infinite going inwards. And that is what this dimension of awakening looks like when we look at it positively correlates with the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. And then the uh, luminous quality is that of light that I referred to earlier, that there's a bright, clear, shining nature to our mind, which we notice at times. I think we, when the mind gets quiet, when we meditate, even if we don't touch this kind of... uh, awakened awareness, we can still have things shine more. We look at a tree and there's something that's shining and luminous with the whole nature. How many have touched, at least at times, something like that shining quality of experience? Yeah, it can be uh, very accessible. Sometimes on retreats it can be there much of the time or even most of the time. Here is a passage from the Buddha. Where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous, that's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. There both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, name and form are wholly destroyed. He's basically saying we're beyond the conceptual distinctions. We no longer live in the world of concepts, and yet there's still awareness. And so that is one of the few passages where the Buddha gave a more what uh, positive description of awakening. And I found a very beautiful counterpart, another poem, This is from uh, Emily Dickinson from 1865. Emily Dickinson, I think, talking about awakening. Ready for Emily? Here she is. There is a zone whose even years no solstice interrupt, whose sun constructs perpetual noon, whose perfect seasons wait, whose summer set in summer, till the centuries of June and centuries of August cease, and consciousness is noon. That would probably take a little bit of interpretation to unpack, but I think it's pointing to something like a kind of awakened experience. And so that this quality of 
what I'm calling awakened awareness, has also been pointed to in other traditions. One of the tradition which traditions which most centrally informs the uh, lineage, really, of Spirit Rock is the Thai forest tradition. And in the Thai forest tradition, there's something like this awakened awareness, a kind of subjectless, objectless awareness, which one can access first and then reside in. So I'll just read a few passages from, from the Thai forest tradition. And this is a more recent tradition, really just dating from the last 130, 140 years. The, one of really the founder of the tradition, uh, Achan Man, who died in 1949, he spoke of what he called the primal mind, which was beyond uh, concepts and conventions. He said, the primal mind is radiant and clear by nature, but is darkened because of corruptions. I think that would be linked with greed, hatred, and delusion. Does that sound something like what we were talking about with the Buddha? And this is from Achan Cha, who is the teacher of Jack Kornfield, with whom I studied uh, myself uh, for a short time. He said, we are practicing to reach the old mind. The old mind is his name for awakening. The original mind, another name he gave it, the old mind, the original mind, is unconditioned. There is no good or bad, long or short, black or white. Does that sound familiar? The nature of the original mind is unwavering. It is tranquil. Practice really means searching to find our way back to the original state, the old thing. It is finding our old home. The original mind does not waver and change following various phenomena. It is by nature perfectly peaceful. It is something that is already within us. So that's the description of what I think is calling us in practice, this quality of an awakened mind, awakened awareness. Again, as teachers, we don't always talk about this, but I think it's helpful to name that. And many, if not most of us, have at least had glimpses of that. And what's possible in practice is to have many glimpses and then have that awakened awareness be more and more stable and more and more accessible. Much of our practice goes in that direction. Another passage from uh, the Thai forest tradition. This is from a practitioner who was a student of Achan Man named Mechi Chow. There, there's a book on her, on her life. Uh, Mechi just is a name for a kind of practitioner in Thailand. So... Maybe I can spell this for you, uh, Eliana, so you can put it in the chat. It's uh, M-A-E-C-H-E-E-K-A-E-W. And there you can, there's a biography of her, which is quite beautiful, which I think you can download. Yeah, it's actually three different words. 
Uh, and you can capitalize each of the three, Mei, Chi, Chao. And this is from her biography about some of her explorations of this territory. Mei Chi Chao had investigated and understood conceptual phenomena so thoroughly that the clear, bright essence no longer made conscious contact with concepts. Thought and imagination within the mind had come to a complete halt. The mind's essential knowing nature stood out alone on its own, except for exceedingly refined awareness, an awareness that suffused the entire cosmos through that boundless quality. Absolutely nothing appeared. Her mind transcended conditions of time and space, again, the boundless. The luminous essence of being that seemed boundless, yet wondrously empty, permeated everything throughout the universe. Everything seemed to be filled by a subtle quality of knowing, as if nothing else existed, cleansed of the things that clouded and obscured its all-encompassing essence. Her mind revealed its true power. Now maybe I'll just read one or two other passages. This is from uh, the Tibetan tradition, which also in many ways focuses on this kind of awareness. Uh, particularly in the traditions I mentioned, myself having background in, uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra. These are two very ancient traditions going back 1,200, 1,300 years. This is a uh, passage, and as you listen to this, let the words affect you. This is a passage describing this kind of awakened awareness, I think in more poetic language. This is from the 16th century, a teacher named uh, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal. So let the words affect you. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. And when I've practiced to <clears throat> initially access more this awakened awareness, I would sometimes say those words to myself as I would be on retreat. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, and let the words almost catalyze the, the awareness. And I should say that my, my mom used to really like those words too. She she loved hearing those words, and I, I made a kind, of, kind of a little, uh, I don't know, something that she could frame and have those words with her. In so that was fun. So they're they're really great words, and maybe one other passage.
This is from the 14th century from Tibet from a teacher named Long Chenpa. Awakened mind is by nature primordially pure. The true nature of phenomena is such that there is nothing to discard or adopt. Rather, the sun and moon of utter lucidity arise when one rests naturally in the spacious expanse. And so there, there are different practices that help to access that awakened awareness that were given by teachers in the Thai forest tradition or the Tibetan tradition. You know, actually, I, I imagine that Margarita on October 9th uh, will give some of those practices. I, I do that in the retreat in November. We have a number of different sort of access routes to touch that awakened awareness. Sometimes we use words. In the Thai forest tradition, there was a way that, uh, really see if this can resonate with you, where <clears throat> the instruction was, be with the ordinary phenomena that are in your mind. Let them be there. Let them be there in the foreground. The sights, the smells, the thoughts. And then let the... Let those phenomena move to the background and focus on the awareness, which has always been there, the awareness that has been there of the phenomena. We might start by saying, okay, here are the phenomena, the ordinary phenomena, and there's kind of awareness knowing them in the background. Let the awareness move to the foreground so you have a kind of awareness of the awareness that is knowing. That would be one of the possible instructions. You stay with that for a while. Or there might be an instruction to just for a moment I might clap and say, when I clap just for a moment, let go totally of all your thinking. One, two, three, let go. Did anyone have just an instant of some larger awareness? Did anyone feel something like that, even just for a moment? That can happen. And so there are these different access routes. And so... Sort of in summary, there's this very important traditional notion of awakening, which has not always been taught in the West. Sometimes we teach more narrowly or teach more about working with the challenges. But it's important to have that sense of awakening and to also bring out that quality of a kind of awakened awareness that is possible that can be accessed, and that when we access it, it can get gradually more and more stable until the point where it can be there just in a moment and be quite stable. We might initially experience that in meditation, and then gradually we bring it out into daily life, which is challenging. The hardest for me is to have that awakened awareness at the computer. 
Unfortunately, the Buddha didn't talk about computer practice, to the best of my knowledge. And that's kind of a segue to the question I wanted to ask. Um, is there... What does awakening mean in our contemporary world? Clearly, I, I very much value that very traditional understanding, which we find with the Buddha, we find with the Thai forest tradition, we find with the Tibetan tradition, we can find the counterpart in other spiritual traditions. And yet I've also been intrigued by the question, or let me back up, in the traditional models, the path to awakening would be to meditate, to study the wisdom teachings, to act ethically. And in particular, we would meditate, we would cultivate mindfulness, we would develop beautiful qualities, we would work with the difficulties that come up, and gradually the qualities of an awakened mind would manifest. You know, one of the teachings you know is the teaching of the factors of awakening. Many of you know that. The qualities of mindfulness and joy and energy and investigation, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. Gradually they manifest uh, more and more. But I've also been intrigued by the question, does that path, is that path of awakening where we meditate, develop in that way, is that adequate for contemporary minds, for contemporary conditioning, for the contemporary world? How does that traditional notion of awakening relate to what we might call a contemporary map of awakening? And it's been interesting that uh, a number of people have suggested the need for what is sometimes called a fourth turning of the wheel. Sometimes the history of Buddhist practice is understood in terms of there has having historically been three turnings. The Buddha was connected with the first turning. Then there was the Mahayana tradition, which led to uh, Zen and other, other traditions. Uh, coming out of India, going to particularly China, Korea, Japan, also some, sometimes to um, South Asia. And then the third turning was taken to be what happened with the Vajrayana, first in India, and then especially moving to Tibet, also forming in some of the other Asian countries. Some of those traditions, particularly the last one, said that there have been three sort of additions to core teachings, three turnings. And then the question is, is there a fourth turning which is happening in our time? Is there a need for somewhat different teachings that can give a somewhat different path, or maybe a, um, yeah, a somewhat different path of awakening. And from my own experience, my answer to that would be yes. That we want to work very much with the traditional model of awakening, 
but there also are dimensions of our own experience in the contemporary world that point to forms of practices and ways of understanding that seem to call for a new path of awakening that integrates much of what was traditional but that also brings in new dimensions. And if I had to be very brief about it, I would say it this way. Awakening needs to get at all the forms of conditioning, all the forms of greed, hatred, and delusion in our own being. And there are forms of conditioning that we can identify that weren't talked about particularly in the ancient traditions. And I'll particularly talk about what I would call psychological conditioning or the psychological dimension of our habits and conditioning and social conditioning. And say that a contemporary path of awakening needs to have understandings and practices which help us get at our psychological stuff which help us work with our unresolved material from childhood, maybe our trauma, our um, psychological habits, you know, our unresolved grief, our residues of the judgmental mind and so forth. And that there really are a whole set of practices. I've been exploring a lot of them, particularly when I teach on the judgmental mind, that I think are necessary for contemporary practitioners and that aren't necessarily touched with traditional teachings. I remember meeting a uh, person who had been a monk for 30 years and talking with him. And I asked, what's your edge of development right now? You've been a monk doing deep practice for 30 years. And he said, I'm working with my old conditioning about needing people to like me. Isn't that poignant? 30 years of practice and something very simple like that is still unresolved. Maybe he hasn't done the psychological work. And I find that, you know, I've sometimes taught our long retreats and I find something very similar that, um, People may have done 10, 20, 30 years of practice and still had major residues that we could call psychological that have not been worked through. And there's something very parallel in terms of our social conditioning. And I think we can notice that we can have people who have very deep experiences of awakening and may not have worked through their cultural or social conditioning. You know, sometimes uh, it might be people, we, we have the phenomenon that we know well of uh, male Buddhist teachers who engage in sexual abuse, who purport to be awakened. What's going on there? How many people know of those kind of stories? Right? You know, so... 
it might suggest that they may have accessed certain kinds of awakening, but not dealt with maybe certain issues of gender, of power, and so forth. You know, you know I, I, found, have found, I found a passage from one of the great Zen teachers of the 20th century named Yasutani Roshi, who was very connected with Japanese nationalism and did, wrote a book that was published in the 1940s which had many deeply anti-Semitic passages. You know, I'll, I'll read one of them that I found. You know, how can this coexist with someone who purports to be awakened? It is therefore necessary to thoroughly defeat the propaganda and strategy of the Jews. The general citizenry became fascinated with the ideas of freedom and equality as advocated by the scheming Jews. We must be aware of the existence of the demonic teachings of the Jews. And we could have many examples like that. What's going on? When those kind of passages were revealed in, in books in the 1990s, contemporary Western Zen teachers said, there must be some levels of awakening that this teacher touched, but the cultural conditioning was not touched. And we could give other examples like that, you know, of where there seems to be material that's not dealt with related to social conditioning. We, again, we could talk about gender, we could talk about racial conditioning, we could talk about the various forms of social conditioning. And so my, my conclusion is that we need a contemporary map of awakening, of the path of awakening. And I want to end by talking really briefly about some of the qualities of this map that I'm pointing to. The first is that we need with this map to identify further forms of greed, hatred, and delusion that are related on the one hand to psychological conditioning and on the other hand to social conditioning. So we can see these as forms of greed, hatred, and delusion and be continuous with the, with the traditional model. We're really giving, we might say, a contemporary vision of freedom that has the aspiration of identifying all forms of greed, hatred, and delusion, including ones that were not identified explicitly 2,600 years ago, but that we can identify now. We want a vision of that full freedom and understand awakening in that way. Secondly, Along with that, we need sets of practices which can help us work with what, broadly speaking, I'm calling psychological conditioning and social conditioning. We need to integrate them with Buddhist practice. As I mentioned, I've been exploring for about 20 years integrating aspects of psychological conditioning to work with what I call the judgmental mind and integrate that with Buddhist teachings and that can, that's one way of doing it. 
You know, I've also explored, I've, I've taught several retreats for people racialized as white people, integrating Buddhist teachings with transforming racial conditioning. You know, we could do that also with gender. You know, to have a, uh, to have uh, trainings, practices, retreats that get at gender conditioning with as much depth as we do with uh, you know, our contemporary retreats. So we need sets of practices. And there are people working with this. Thirdly, we need to un explore and clarify the extent to which we understand traditional models of awakening and contemporary models as something we integrate, or are they different? Are they parallel? How do we relate the traditional map of awakening to the contemporary map of awakening? I would say that it gets, gets integrated. Fourthly, it's really crucial that the traditional map of awakening and teachings of awakening be integrated. You know, that we have access to this, these beautiful awakened states that, that I explored earlier. How can that be integrated with also exploring other dimensions of our conditioning? And I've actually been, I've actually thought at times of developing a training program where we would do both. We would explore both training in traditional maps of awakening and training in contemporary maps and bring them together, maybe in a one-year or two-year training program. Anyone interested? Okay. If you want to keep in touch, you can get on my email list, which I, I just send emails two or three times a year, so if you're interested. Fifthly, um, the integration so far has occurred more fully in terms of Western psychology. There's been a fair amount of integration of Buddhist practice and dimensions of Western psychology. It's happened less with the social dimension, but it's happening more now. People like uh, Ruth King, Rhonda McGee are bringing in uh, mindfulness of racial conditioning. Uh, other people are exploring other, other dimensions of that. And the last point I want to name is that I think part of this sense of contemporary awakening is that a lot of it will happen in community, not as much just individually. You know, some of you may know the great Vietnamese uh, Zen teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, once said, he once said this, it is possible that the next Buddha will not take the form of an individual. The next Buddha may take the form of a community. A community practicing understanding and loving kindness, a community practicing mindful living. The practice can be carried out as a group, a city, or as a nation. So if you want to be a Buddha, maybe you're in a Buddha community. Interesting, isn't it? And I think that points to the way that uh, for cultivating awakening, 
in relation to our more contemporary conditioning, we may need to do a fair amount of work with groups and communities. You know, and I know that I was involved with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and we did about 30 uh, six-month training programs with groups of 10 or 15 people. I was involved with about 10 of them, and they were very powerful. They gave a sense of what it meant to awaken together. And so let me close with a, a quotation. This is from Angel Kyoto Williams, who I think has a, a similar vision of both um, touching the depths of traditional understandings of awakening while connecting that with um, freedom, both, we might say, more psychologically and socially. She says, to do our work, to come into a deep knowing of who we are, that's the stuff that's also the bringing down of systems of oppression, reclaiming the human spirit, which includes reclaiming the humanity of the people who are currently the vehicles for oppression. So again, the vision of awakening is of awakening in all the parts of our lives, and it's a, it's a vision of awakening for all beings, without exception. So thank you for listening to my talk, a little longer than I thought, and I covered a lot, but I hope it was helpful. And let's just sit maybe for a minute or two and let it, let it settle for a bit. See if there's any kind of a question that's arising, maybe a sharing of some experience or insight or a story. See what's there for you. be a request for further clarification. We covered a lot. So let me invite you if you have if you want to share in some way, ask a question or share something, uh, use the raised hand function and Ileana will help. You can also put a comment or question in the chat and Ileana will be tracking that. Okay.
Yeah. 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 Yeah, thank you. Uh, beautiful question, Christian, and um I think probably a lot of people can relate to that. It's also a question sort of of the uh, the phase of our practice. You know, sometimes there can be initial phase where we want to explore different approaches to get a sense of what resonates the most. But there is, I think, uh, you know, I, I imagine that actually in your very posing of the question, you you're inclining towards your own answer. That's my guess, which is, which is that of, uh, that depth is important, right? And so one of the ways to, um, really, uh, bring in that depth question and know that you're working for depth is to work with the teacher. You know, and, and, and because a teacher presumably should have gone into many depth dimensions and can share more or less how to do that and how to work with that. And so working with a teacher can be very fundamental. If you're on your own, even with a friend or two, it sometimes, the, the depth can sometimes be elusive, you know, um, so it's helpful to find a teacher that you feel comfortable with and stay, you know, and stay with that teacher and get a sense of what the map is. You know, the, you know, I, I gave a, I gave really two maps of awakening, one traditional and one contemporary. And, you know, it's fine to do both of those, uh, you know, or, or do, um, do something very traditional, but, a teacher can give give guidance, and that being said, there can be a lot of overlap between different approaches, right? And so, for example, there's quite a lot of overlap between the approach that comes from Thich Nhat Hanh and Plum Village and what we do at Spirit Rock. You know, and personally, I, in my own practice, um, have learned a lot from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh have visited Plum Village and been at many retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh. And it's pretty continuous with uh, um, Spirit Rock. And of course, you know, I was involved with what we call socially engaged Buddhism and Thich Nhat Hanh was one of the sort of uh, pioneers in that. So, you know, if you look to my book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, I think he has more references than anyone else. <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, so, so there can be a lot of overlap um, there, and that wouldn't really put you in conflict, or you could uh, probably, if you could be grounded in, in that tradition and still really benefit from retreats at Spirit Rock, for example. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Christian. Yeah. Another sharing or reflection or question really can be about anything in practice. Uh, not necessarily related to the talk, but if you have something related to the talk, that, that would be fun. Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Thank you, David. It's an important question. Um, what I'm referring to is the, there, there are a few things. One of them is um, as we, um, as we practice mindfulness or other forms of meditation, there can be a um, lessening of how much we're thinking all the time. You know, and maybe you've experienced that quite directly. You know, that we, you know, that was certainly uh, my experience when I was first learning to meditate. I was a student at the time, and I was, you know, my sense was I was supposed to be t thinking all the time. <laughs> and, um, and, and what I learned in meditating is that my mind could settle so I wasn't thinking, so I could actually be with uh, a sunset and not be thinking all the time, but to be with the colors without thought, right, at times, or could be fairly minimal. Uh, and some of that comes from the mind being more concentrated, but so there, there develops the ability to um, more directly be with the senses, you know, to be with, uh, you know, if you've done retreats, you probably have experienced also when we have meals in silence, you can be with the tastes and smells and it can be very direct and mostly just an experience of the senses uh, without much thinking. And so one dimension of our practice is a training in having the capacity to not be dominated by our thinking, which uh, goes hand in hand with using thinking more skillfully when we choose to. But there is the capacity to, um, as it were, have the thinking mind go into the background or fade away or lessen. And so that's part of what the training occur, the training that we have. And I was pointing also to awakened awareness where that kind of uh, conceptual mind can be not there, can be really uh, not functioning. From on the level of the brain, 
it simply means shifting the functioning from one part of the brain to another because there are they've done research and they find there are parts of the brain associated with awakened awareness but we as it were we put out of mostly temporarily out of commission that part of the brain which is related to uh, conceptual functioning and so we we have the capacity to do that but we also have the capacity to use concepts skillfully when we want to so the buddha certainly could do that i think he had the he said that we can go into what kind of awareness which is signless or conceptless but we all you know he could also talk about it with concepts so that is first that's really first that there are trainings in meditation maybe that you've experienced which let us temporarily suspend the mind but as you say we also need to use uh, concepts for all sorts of things in daily life we can function with with concepts uh we need to function with concepts in much of what we do and use them i'm using plenty of them right now right i'm using plenty of concepts to talk about going beyond concepts <laughs> right and so just one other aspect which i won't talk about so much is that when we become stable in something like awakened awareness we can also you we can also have our center of gravity in awakened awareness and not in concepts so that i think this is where the buddha was coming from that we can actually have a kind of awakened awareness in which we also use concepts at the same time but are not bound by them in the usual way and when they've done research they find that the functioning of the brain is different so does that help some day you can do both at once yeah and that's that's where this would this is where the training would go it's not that's not easy that's not what we would train in first but it's possible to actually have be have this awakened awareness and um possibly give a dharma talk or or uh you know uh do planning and so forth yeah Yeah, thanks David. Go to Tyler, please. Hey. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's an important question. Um can happen in different ways, you know, and it's uh uh you know, I'll I'll say what my own personal experience was. Um I think the, you know, I I started going to retreats when I was in my 20s and I would meet people who I liked and I just would, you know, 
keep going to uh, the retreats. And in the retreats, they would function as teachers. They would meet with them. I would talk with them. And uh, over the years, you know, I was drawn to some more than others. And I would ask them, can I come do uh, or a, a longer retreat with you? Or can we work together? Um, I also, more locally, you know, knew that there were some people who were much more senior than me. And I asked, could I meet with you uh, and talk about my practice um, once every two weeks or once every month, right? And I, I asked, would ask that person, you know, it could be however you have contact by telephone or email or directly. And um, so that's, that's also over, over the years, that's, that's what I've done. I've, um, you know, and some, I, I've asked people and some people have actually, I think, uh, getting to know my practice well, they, they've also made the offer to work with me. So I think it can happen in different ways, but mostly you want to have kind of a lookout for people you feel a resonance with, sort of maybe in terms of their personality and so forth. And, and you know, and then, you know, and then one way to work with people, you know, I, I work with... Uh, a number of people, typically a monthly basis, and I might have a Zoom or a photo, uh, a phone session once a month for half an hour, right? And and personally, I, I do it on a on a Donna basis, where people make make an offering. Other people have fees and so forth, something like that. How's that sound, Tyler? <laughs> yeah, I mean there are there are some uh, teachers who actually have websites which say if you're interested, contact me. Right? Yeah, but I think I would think mostly, I would say mostly uh, work with people so you have a sense of some connection and pull. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler. I think we have time for one more. Could be a sharing or a question or um, a story. Anyone else have anything related to awakening? Good. Anything in the chat, Eliana? Uh, okay. Okay, going once. <laughs> Last chance for a sharing or question or comment. And I encourage uh, half-baked questions. They don't have to be fully baked. Okay, great. So let's, um, let's finish by sitting quietly together. And bring to mind what may have been helpful 
from any part of the evening. Could be just in your sitting, an insight which occurred, maybe some resolution of an unresolved issue, something from the talk, some maybe intention that you might have coming out of the evening. Just sit with that for a minute or two right now. And if you haven't, see if there's an intention which comes out of the evening, just for yourself. And we'll close with the traditional dedication of merit. May the benefits of our evening be there for us, be there for those in our own circles. And then beyond our own circles, may the benefits of our evening be there for all beings, knowing that we are included in all beings. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for your kind attention and for our shared exploration of awakening. May we all continue to awaken. And I uh, look forward to being with you in other situations and venues, hopefully very soon in person. And I'll do my, uh, my hand gesture also to say goodbye. And if you want to unmute, you can you can speak. Bye-bye, okay. everyone. And so if you want to unmute, feel free to... Oh. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Till next time. Thank you, Eliana. Yay for Eliana. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you. Okay. And the talk will be on Dharma Seed. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash 
donate.